freedom, the beauty that we have in meeting here uh, this morning of being together. God, we're grateful for your protection over our lives, over this body, over uh, these occasions in which we meet. Um, and yet we continue to pray for our nation uh, as we deal with COVID-19, as we deal with uh, racial inequality and uh, the consequences of those things in our lives. God, we continue to pray for our country as we indeed interact and engage with other countries. We pray indeed that you would help us to be one. Help us, God, to see and focus upon you. So in that, we pray for your church worldwide. I pray for your church in countries in which it is not uh, lawful to do what we do today, and yet the gospel still spreads and thrives. Uh, we pray for uh, the church in places where the church has become more historic than relevant, and so we pray indeed, indeed for revival and renewal in those places. God, we pray for the church in America that you would again return us to our first love, uh, to you, to your glory, to your majesty, to your beauty, to your justice, uh, to your love. That indeed we would know, God, that you are good and that we are loved. God, may it be that uh, in these days as well, we all have folks in our lives, and maybe there's folks that stand in this sanctuary today who have desperate need of your healing, of your power, of your strength, the desperate need of your joy, of contentment, of peace to surround them in their lives. God, that may be even here today with a great need for answers with regard to their lives, and they come searching today for those. God, by your grace, in your mercy, in these moments, would you teach us together that you are indeed a healing God, a good God, that you are a God who is always enough, and you are a God that indeed leads us uh, even through very hard times. Mm. May you teach us. May you grow us uh, by your inspiration today. God, will we be changed. And for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> all right, dads, uh, I need your help this morning, right? Uh, uh, the, uh, the, I'm going to give you a scenario, and I'm going to ask you what question it is that you ask in this scenario. Hopefully you get it right, all right? So, so here's the scenario. Remember the day in which you uh, first found out that you were pregnant? Okay, so your wife was pregnant, but it's Father's Day, right? So, but, so yeah, I, I understand. You remember that, that moment, that time when you found out that you and your wife were expecting. And, and you remember the big buildup and all of the anticipation that's going that how you suffered through morning sickness. I'm going to get emails from you ladies, I know, but that's all right. All right, so, so how, how you in, indeed walked through those times together. You, you got the nursery ready and you, you prayed hard and you thought hard and you thought, how in the world am I going to afford this thing? And all of those questions, right? All of the big buildup, all of the anticipation of the reality of that first child. You with me? And, and so then all of that comes. You, you've endured labor pain. You've endured the birth, right? And, and here you come. You now have this little bundle of blessing, and you bring that little blessing home. And with all the anticipation, with all the excitement, and you ask, what question? 
It's on the screen. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for helping them out. That's good. Yeah, what do I do now? Right? I mean, there's all this excitement, all this anticipation, and yet you, you come to that place. And uh, Listen, when, when, when I was a kid, I had lots of kids around me. My mom watched kids in our house. I loved kids. I changed diapers. I helped. I did all those kinds of things. I had nephews and a niece prior to our first child that I loved to play with. I, I was familiar with kids, but I will be really honest with you. As much as I thought I was prepared to bring Megan home, that first child home, I was found asking the question, like, like what do I do? Now. Right? You with me? Are you alive? Yes. All right, thank you. Super. All right, so, so I, 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 I want you to ask yourself if you remember where we left off last week as we were in the study of the book of Acts. If, 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 if the disciples weren't facing the birth of a baby, but they were involved in the birth of a movement. Right? I mean, think about their scenario in the midst of that day. So, so they had walked with Jesus for three years, put, called out as his disciples to come alongside him. They've watched him do miracles. They've heard him teach uh, amazing truths. They, they've done all of these things. And then they get to this place uh, where there's uh, a crucifixion, where their hero, their, their mentor, their Lord, their Savior, right? The reality of who it is that they're following uh, is killed. And <laughs> there's this resurrection thing three days later, right? And in the midst of that, uh, all of this anticipation and buildup of of what's going to happen, right? And then last week we got to this place where all of a sudden you have all that anticipation, all that build up, and, and, and they're standing on the Mount of Olivet, and, and Jesus goes, whoop! And he's gone, remember? And where did we leave them? Standing, staring, while these angels tell them, listen, he's coming back to see good, but it's time for you to do something. And so their question may have been, what? What, what, what do we do now? <laughs> Can you imagine that that would be maybe a primary question on their hearts and minds? I mean, it was easy as Jesus was here. You follow him. You do what he did. You do what he told you to do. But like, he's gone. So what is it that we do now? Well, that's where we pick up this morning. But before we get there, uh, your quiz this morning, and I know it's early on in our study, so... Uh, I've provided answers for you, right? Uh, but I, I do uh, appreciate uh, crowd response. So who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did. That's good. Uh, and who did he write it to? Theophilus. But through Theophilus to a, a greater Gentile audience, right? I won't hold you to that on the quiz. Theophilus is good. And, and why is it that he wrote the book of Acts? Yeah, that, the, that those disciples, that, that the early church would seize the day, that we, as we read the book of Acts, would be carpe diem, that we, indeed, would seize the day. Now, here's the big one, right? You should be working on this. What is the key verse of this? Acts 1.8. I put it on the screen. You can cheat, but you should be memorizing this, right? So let's say it together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Anybody got it memorized? Oh, good. Several of you, Molly. You're super. Yes, good. Um, and you may have had it memorized before I asked you to memorize it. Yeah, that's what I figured. All right, so get to work, right? That, that's, we we want to have that in our brains and in our hearts 
as we walk through it. So turn in your Bibles uh, this morning, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Uh, if you have brought your Bible, that's great. Open it. I love that discipline. And as you'll notice, there are not pew Bibles because this whole there's a virus going around. I don't know. Uh, and, and so the, we don't have them. But uh, some have asked me if, while there are not pew Bibles, uh, because they don't bring their Bible from home that we put it on the screen. So it's on the screen this morning. Uh, a favor that I don't regularly do for you, but I will as long as we don't have pew Bibles there. Right. So Acts chapter one, verse twelve, through verse twenty-six. I want you to hear. The very word of God. And I want you to ask yourself the question that maybe the disciples are asking themselves the question of what do we do now? Verse 12. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, about a little more than a half mile. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then a parenthetical thought for the Gentiles who didn't know this story, right? So here's the story, and I'm sorry it's a bit graphic, but it's the word of God, so here we go. Now this man uh, acquired a field, speaking of Judas, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's an image you want to get rid of quickly. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. And then it picks back up. And here's Peter, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter continues in quoting scripture. He says, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Three points this morning, right? What do they do now, right? That's the question. They obey, they pray, and they ask God, what is it that you say? It even rhymes this morning. It's easy to remember, right? Obey, they pray, and they ask God, what is it that you say? Say, first, I want you to see that they obey. So the disciples sitting there staring into heaven, angels speak to them. They ask the question, what do we do now? The answer is the first thing they do is they obey. Do you see it there in verse 12? But you, you, you actually see the, the command in verse 4. If you flip back to verse 4, it says, While staying with them, he ordered them, this being Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. 
right? So Jesus tells them before, he goes, whoop, right? He says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. Verse 12, it says, they return to Jerusalem. Don't miss the simplicity of this and yet the profundity of it, right? They obeyed. Because think about it, what has he told them? He says, listen, you're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You might hear that as, okay, spread out, right? We're in huddle. God says, I bless you. Okay, go. And they might have all said, hey, I think it's time to, to scatter, right? It's time to go. But wait a minute, didn't Jesus say, stay in Jerusalem? That doesn't quite make sense when we're supposed to be going to all the nations. But he said, stay. So huddle up. I think we should stay, right? So from the Mount of Olivet, they make the just over a half-mile journey back to Jerusalem, probably back to the very room that they uh, were together in for the Last Supper with Jesus, and, and they are there, right? So they obey. I ask you, has God ever told you to do something that didn't make sense? I would love to take about 20 minutes and hear those stories, but we're not. But th- th- you understand, right? A-, a Noah moment, right? When-, when-, when God says build a boat when it's like never rained. <laughs> you know, that just doesn't make sense, right? But Noah does it. A, a-, a Joshua moment when-, when you're going to take over Jericho and he says, listen, put your guns down, all that stuff. What I want you to do is march around the, t- the-, the-, the city of Jericho for seven days and then on the seventh day walk around seven times, blow trumpets, that's how you're going to win. What? Right? So, so that kind of obedience, hearing God say crazy things, and, and in our lives, the reality is the same. Sometimes God calls us to obey Him when it doesn't make sense. Can I tell you something that doesn't make sense? It doesn't, I love you all, but it doesn't make sense for Matthew and Bethany Geary to come to Covenant Church. And you know what? It doesn't make sense that we called them. We hardly know each other. Right? I mean, we've had a couple Zoom meetings. We met them. We put them through their courses in a weekend. They met a bunch of us. And somehow, at the end of that weekend, God says to his search team, this is the guy. And God says to the guy, this is the church. I mean, if you really think about it, it doesn't make sense. But it's obedience, right? Some of you know our story, right? 16 years in a church in Austintown, Ohio. Perfectly happy, right? My son is on staff. My son-in-law is the head of the deacons. Nepotism at its best, right? We, we had it going, right? My, my, my granddaughters would come to church every week, and they would run down the aisle to say hi to Pap at the end of the service. I mean, it was perfect. And God says, uh, I think you should leave. What? And I'll be really honest with you. We were disobedient for a while. No, we ain't leaving. God, you've got it all wrong. This is perfect. But God finally got through, and we obeyed to do something that didn't make sense, and now you're stuck with us. (laughs) Here's the point, rather the question. Are you obeying? Simple, yet... Profound. You know, George Barna, a guy that likes to do a lot of research, right? And does a lot of statistics, and I'm not a big statistics guy, but some of his research is really helpful. A number of years back, he took a poll across the country about people's ethical behavior. And he found out that out of 18 biblical categories of 
ethical behavior, there were 16, ready for this, that the Christians were no different than the non-Christians. For instance, in areas of cheating, in areas of having sex before or outside of marriage, getting a non-biblical divorce, issues with pornography, gossip or lying, that there were as many Christians active in these things as there were non-Christians. That's disobedience. So I'm not talking about the, the go to Africa stuff, right? I'm talking about today being obedient to the things that you know that God would have you do. In fact, Barna says this. These statistics highlight the fact that millions of people who rely on Jesus Christ for their eternal destiny have problems translating their religious beliefs into action beyond Sunday mornings. Yikes. None of you, I'm sure, but know that there's a world out there that's like that, right? I jest. Obey. Maybe in a moment like this morning, you ask, what is it in my life that, that God is leading me? He's asking me that I trust him more than my sin. That I would trust him in a place of obedience. It might be something you need to give up. It might be a call that you need to answer. It might be a person that you need to forgive. We ask the question, what do we do now? What can we do this morning? Here's tangible reality to that. Obey. What is it that you know that God is asking you to do? Do it. Jesus made it clear to the disciples to stay in Jerusalem, to wait expectantly for the promise of God. It didn't make a lot of sense in chapter 1, right? As we look at this text today, ah, I'm not sure this makes a lot of sense. But I guarantee you, when you come next week and we turn the page to chapter 2, it makes all the sense in the world. So I would say this to you in your life. Some things may not make sense today in your chapter 1. It may not make sense that you need to break up with that non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. It may not make sense that you, you tell someone uh, that you love them when there's been this angst in your heart towards them, right? It may not make sense uh, to obey in whatever it is that God is calling. Uh, it may not make sense today in your chapter one, but I guarantee you, hear me, Covenant Church, your evidence of this in my life, I guarantee you it'll make sense in chapter two. You hear me? Obedience. Obedience. Michael Green, a great uh, author, theologian, says this, God can do wonders through an obedient person, however limited their capacities. Uh, exhibit number one. Right? God can do wonders through an obedient person, however limited their capacities. God cannot and will not use a habitually disobedient person however great their talents. Hear it. What do we do now? We obey. Secondly, what do we do now? We pray. Look in, in verse 14. All these, after he's mentioned the disciples, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Again, in verse 24, we'll see this in a second, uh, the disciples pray. What do they do? They obey, but they also pray. And, and note that the prayer does not appear to be an obligation. 
so uh, we don't want to write into the text. It's not in verse 14 that they all got together and said, hmm, I guess we should pray. You don't get that sense, right? They're at a place, at a juncture in their lives and in their ministry of, what do we do now? There's a place of expectation. There's a a place of of buildup. And there's a question of, what do we do now? And it's not, oh, yeah, I guess we should pray. No, it's, listen, from their gut, the reality is, is we need God to tell us what to do. And so they pray. Picture it. The disciples, the women, other followers of Christ numbered 120 people packed into this room. They're staying in a city, get this, where we might say conservatively there are 2 million people in the day of Pentecost. There's 120 of them. I think that's why Luke mentions it, right? There's 120 of them to 2 million. I did the math. I'm not very good at math, but I think that's one per every 150,000 people. Those are overwhelming odds. They were led to pray. They were going to pray. Four quick things about this prayer. First, I think it's a prayer that recognizes God for who He is. A prayer that goes something like this. God, like, we were there, right? Especially the disciples. Like, we were there. We saw you, like, make wine from water. We saw you walk on water. We saw you calm the storm. We've heard you teach with authority that there's no way you should have. We saw things change. We saw people healed. We saw dead raised. We saw all these kinds of things. We know, listen, we know you're awesome. So as they approach God, there is this uh, this sense of recognizing God for who he is. Secondly, though, it's a prayer that expects God to do something. God, you've done this before, so like, what are you going to do now? Like, we weren't, we're really sorry we weren't paying real good attention when you told us about the Holy Spirit, but we know there's something out there. Like, like what are you going to do to empower us, to, to, to make sure that we are your witnesses, that we will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the Angel? What, what is it that you're going to do? They, they make recognition of who God is, and then they expect God to do something. Notice this specifically in the prayer in verses 24 and 25. Another scenario when they're about to pick the 12th disciple, right? So a different scenario, but here their expectancy and and their recognition of God. They say this, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. First of all here, Lord, you know. They recognize that he's sovereign. They recognize that he's wise. They recognize that he has the plan. They recognize that he knows what's going to happen. Lord, you know this. Here's the expectation. Would you show us? (laughs) You ever prayed like that? God, I know that you know what you're doing. Would you please show us what it is that you're doing? This is the prayer. This is the prayer that they pray together. Thirdly, look at this. Notice back in verse 14 what happens when they pray. They join together. I I, I want you to hear this. It's no small thing, I don't think. And I think actually Luke is intentionally placing emphasis on it. First of all, there's a bad joke here, right, in in verse 14. Maybe you've heard it. What's the first automobile mentioned in the Bible? This is a bad dad joke, right? What's the first automobile known in the Bible? Well, it's, it's here in Acts 1.14 when the disciples were all gathered in one accord. <laughs> Just a little levity for you, right? 
So, so, so let's get back to the point, though, right? Understand that when they pray, they're actually coming together. There's a reason that I think Luke lists the disciples. Why? Because they're all different from different places with different personalities. They've fought for three years about who's the greatest and who gets to go with Jesus and, and what's going to happen. They have fought. They, they, he mentions in this, they're Simon the Zealot. You know what the Zealots did? They hated corrupt government, and they gave their lives to fighting corrupt government. And guess who else was a disciple? Matthew, who was a part of the corrupt government, a tax collector, stealing more. I mean, put Simon and Matthew in a room. You ready? But put them in a room and pray together, and they fit in a Honda. <laughs> Even more, get this, there's women praying with them. Whoa, I, I know we love to pray together as a church. Now there's women and men together. That didn't happen. But here they're packed in a room, 120 of them, and they didn't separate the ladies from the guys. They prayed together. He makes mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Why? Because twice in the Gospels we find that Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to rescue Jesus from these lousy disciples. Remember those stories? Like, he's out of his mind. Can we just take him home now? Is there some conflict there? Probably. But they're together praying. Why? Because prayer brings us together. How about the brothers of Jesus? Luke mentions them right here, separates them out. Why? Because we know historically that up until the resurrection, Jesus' brothers were not believers. They were tired of this oldest son that like, always did it right. That mom could never be mad at, right? I, I don't know what it was, but we're, we're told historically that they, they didn't. But in the resurrection, as Jesus appears and reappears to his brothers, they become believers. You think there's some animosity in the room? Yes, on the flesh, but not in the spirit. Why? Because when they prayed, they came together. Don't miss that in the text. They come together in obedience. And they pray. Lastly, you'll see that they are constant. They're, they're devoted to their prayer. They're devoted to their prayer. Calvin has said that there's two things to effectual prayer and two results that we get as effectual prayer comes about. And that is we join together and that we're devoted to it, that we're constant in it. These disciples, these women, these 120, listen, they, they weren't praying out of obligation. They were devoted. They found themselves loving, praying together. Here's the point, church. How could we learn from the fact that desperate prayers bring us together? Oh, how we need in the body of Christ to relearn community and specifically to be a praying community and a people who pray for our community that is exceptionally diverse. How's your prayer life? Obligatory or devoted? Because you have to or because you get to? Is there desperation in knowing that God is good and yet we expect Him to do something grand?
A number of weeks ago, I participated, many of you are aware of, in the protest march here in Sharon, PA. Uh, Jeff Gordon and I, along with a number of other pastors in Sharon, simply prayed as we marched. And at the city building, there was a, a number of people that spoke uh, very passionately about the issue of the day and racial inequality. But probably the most emotional moment for me in the whole course of the day, and a lot of it was emotional, was there was a, a, an amazing change that happened. There was one young man uh, in our midst who was very vocal about his anger um, and his frustration over the racial inequality in our land. And so from time to time, he grabbed the megaphone and he had permission, and, and he would... He would get people riled up and angry with him, right? It was divisive, the very things that he said. But there was one time in particular where he had just gotten done, and there was this uh, black woman, to, I, I wish I knew her name, she's a pastor in, I think, Farrell. Uh, she's the grandmotherly type that everybody's going to listen to, right? And she grabs this little electronic megaphone, and, and she completely undoes everything that that man did to divide and she unified. You know what she said? We just need to pray. So she would talk for a while and then she'd say, but we just need to pray. And then she'd talk for a while and then she'd say, but we just need to pray. And she says, in fact, we need to pray. And there was, the, 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 the moment before this, there were people with fists in the air and, and as she spoke, they became folded hands in front of their chest. We need to pray. Are you here this morning wondering, what can I do with regard to racial injustice in my world? Will it help if I just complain to my neighbor a lot about the riots and how crazy that is? No. Will it help to justify um, our white privilege and try to explain that away? No. You know what will help? If we pray. You know how we bring people of different places together? We pray. We pray for a community. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we pray for those angry people who are hurt deeply. We pray. That's what brings us together. And listen, it's not just about racial equity or racial inequality, it's about anything. It's about everything. The disciples, they obeyed and they prayed. Secondly, or thirdly, they asked, what does God say? Verses 15 through 26 hold two really interesting studies that we don't have the time this morning to develop wholly. Uh, the first of those is the prophetic nature of Judas's betrayal and death. Um, talked about and referenced by Peter. He, he says there in the text, the scripture had to be fulfilled as he refers to Judas's betrayal and his death. And then Peter quotes directly from Psalm 69 and 109, and not far from his mind had to be Zechariah 11. Why? Because God had said over and over again that this was going to happen, and he had taught it in his word. Peter, what, knew his word, and so at a really tense and uh, emotional moment, Peter is able to say what God has said and bring peace. 
Uh, the second thing in all of this is the way in which they picked Matthias as Judas' replacement, a system that might seem odd to us, picking lots, right? So who's got the short stick or whatever? Uh, but again, it's, it's firmly rooted in Old Testament practice, and by the way, was covered deeply in prayer. But here's the point. Peter, as he addresses these things, knew the Word of God. And in knowing it, he could make some sense of a very confusing and traumatic situation. I mean, do you think it was easy for the disciples to hear of Judas's suicide? And the tragic way in which he died? Of course not. This is a man who walked with them for three years. We often quickly vilify Judas as the betrayer, right? Because we know the end of the story. But listen, for three years, this guy was their friend. How badly did they want to get news that Judas had repented as Peter had from his betrayal? How badly did they want to know that Judas had asked for forgiveness and was joining their throng, and instead they hear of his death in a field that he bought with the money that was given to him for the betrayal? It wrecked them. You talk about trauma and emotional moments, and yet in this place... Peter wisely speaks the word of God. And he says, this is what was foretold. And out of it comes peace, and out of it comes a recognition of what to do now. How well do you know the word of God? How well do you hear God through his word in confusing and traumatic circumstances? Listen, a lot of us slip into self-preservation and just getting through it on our own. Some of us have a few good places in the scripture that help us to focus, but very few of us want to ask in a confusing and traumatic time, what does God say? And then search like crazy in his living and active word to find hope and peace and truth. I thank God that we are a church that loves and depends on the Word of God and that you have done so for literally centuries. To, to love and depend on a Word that tells us that we will suffer in this life, but in that suffering we will learn to yearn for eternity with God. A Word that tells us that bad things do happen, but that God is always working to redeem even the bad things for His good. A Word that tells us that we are loved even though we're unlovely. A word that tells us that our lives are not about us, but we have been given them to be all about Jesus, that we would indeed make much of him. So what do we do now? We ask the question, what does God say? Every day and in every circumstance in order that we might not lean upon our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge him that he might make our paths, what? Straight. As we wrap up, I, I, I want to teach you a song that I learned a while back. Um, I'm going to put the words uh, on the screen in case you want to sing along. It's a familiar tune, um, but the words are changed up a little bit. So let me, I, I am going to sing the first verse in, in the chorus. You, re, you ready for this song? It goes something like this. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight. With the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight, Christ our rightful master stands against the foe. Onward into battle, we seem afraid to go. 
backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. None of you are like singing with me, right? There's a couple other stanzas to it. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we have often trod. We are much divided, many bodies we, having different doctrines, but not much charity. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the cross of Jesus hidden does remain. Gates of hell should never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, but we still think it may fail. Sit here then, ye people, join our sleeping throng, blend with ours your voices in a feeble song. Blessings, ease, and comfort ask from Christ the King, but with our modern thinking, we don't do a thing. Can I share something? No matter how much our lives might reflect this anthem. <laughs> and I speak for myself. This cannot be the anthem that we sing. This is not our song, church. This cannot be what we settle for. I am so glad that it was not the anthem in that room with 120 people in Acts 1. I'm so grateful for them setting a high bar of obedience, of praying, and seeking the Word of God for what it is that He has to say in hard times. That we might sing with them a different song this morning, a different anthem, and one that we strive to live out in all of life. One that we will sing that says, God, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. Because I will follow you. Who you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. Even if this life I lose, I will follow you. That's the anthem of Acts chapter 1. What, what do we do now? That's what we do.